Bible, uh, turn to Galatians chapter 5. And we're working our way through this book, uh, a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia. And tonight we're going to focus on Galatians 5 verse 26 to Galatians 6 verse 5. It's on page 1172 if you've got one of the Pew Bibles. Uh, Let me pray before we read that. Our Father in heaven, we pray this evening that your spirit would lead us into the truth that sets us free. And we pray that you would counter our self-deceitfulness and give us a right view of ourselves that we might fulfill the law of Christ by loving each other. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Let's read Galatians 5, verse 26 onwards. Paul writes, Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers, if someone's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Now to begin with, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8 that we read earlier on. uh, Page 973 in the Pew Bibles. Now I go here, I was reading through Matthew this week in my morning readings. And as I read part of the narrative, I was just very struck by a question that I'd never asked before. Uh, In Matthew 5, verse 24, the picture is Jesus in a storm, uh, in a boat with his disciples. And we just very simply read, Without warning, a furious storm came up in the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. Now the question that came to my mind is this, why? Why does he sleep? So I thought, okay, let's, let's look at what he's been doing pre- previous to this. So if you flick back, you see, okay, what has he been doing? Chapters 5, 6, and 7, he has just preached this mammoth sermon, which itself would have been pretty exhausting. And it's not just the type of sermon that itches people's ears, giving them what they want to hear. It is a, it is a, a sin-confronting sermon. This is a hard sermon to preach. It is an exhausting experience for Jesus. Uh, He finishes the sermon, uh, but he has no vestry to retire to for a nice cup of tea because he has to traipse himself down the mountain and start chapter 8. And then what happens? Immediately confronted with this man with leprosy. And he engages in what would have been an emotional conversation with this man. He goes through the emotional roller coaster of uh, empathizing with his disease and then rejoicing in his healing. Then surely he must get a break. But no, he goes from uh, preaching on the mountain to descending the mountain to healing the leper to immediately being confronted with this centurion. And you see again the next emotional experience? This guy flat on his face, weeping, because his servant is in tragedy and torment. So again, Jesus engages with him. It's not just an easy wave of the wand, but it is 
an opportunity to teach and to proclaim to this man and to bring his servant to health. Then you think, okay, he he finally gets to Peter's mother-in-law's house. Surely now he can put his feet up and have a cup of tea. No. Another experience of Peter's mother-in-law being uh, in bed with a fever. And so another uh, empathy. And he gives and he serves. And you think, finally. You know, verse uh, 16, when evening came, surely it's going to say he went to bed. No, what does it say next? Verse 16, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. And he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. So these three episodes of a leper and this ill servant and then Peter's mother-in-law are not the only miracles, but there are many and there are all. Jesus here is engaging with this massive crowd. This is exhausting. He is entering here not only into the, the energy of a sermon and then the empathy, but it is the spiritual battle of the demon-possessed. You go back to my question, why does Jesus sleep on the boat? How can he lay his head down on this fishing boat with guts and blood spilling all around him? How can he sleep? Why does he sleep? What a stupid question. He's exhausted. See that? Yes, he is fully God, but he's also fully man. And he is laid out. He is he's just wrecked. He's goosed. He's wiped out. This emotional day when evening came. The many, the all. Now why do I go there to start off the sermon? Because here is Jesus who gives and gives and gives of himself. And what is the only thing he takes? We read it earlier on verse 17. He took up our infirmities and he carried our diseases. Here is his ministry where he gives and he serves. And the only thing he takes is all the men, all the disease, all the infirmities. And he's exhausted that he could even sleep on a boat even during a storm. Now, why do I go there? Because Jesus, led by the Spirit in Matthew's Gospel, is led into this burden-bearing ministry. A ministry that we know did not just extend to infirmities and diseases, but as we read from Isaiah, he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. What is the cross but the bearing of the greatest burden of our sin? So when we come to Galatians 6, what we see is the same spirit that led Jesus into this burden-bearing ministry is the spirit that leads us into a similar ministry of service and exhaustion. We've seen in Galatians that we are relieved from the endless race of trying to be justified before the law. Relieved from that as Christ fulfills the law and takes the curse in our place. But you know what life in the Spirit is? Life in step with the Spirit? It is a life of similar exhaustion to that of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is where you are led to be breathless for your brothers and sweaty for your sisters as you take their burdens and carry their loads. I want to show you that from Galatians this evening, that actually exhaustion should be the norm for the Christian. Uh, that those led by the Spirit should get to heaven breathless because of our similar love that the Lord Jesus Christ shared. 
So come back to Galatians chapter 5 and 6. And I want us tonight just to see two things that we are led towards by God's Spirit. Two things that we are to be engaged in. And then one thing at the end which will keep us from doing these things. All right, here's number one. Verse one, we are to be those who are restoring those who are caught in sin. Look at verse one with me, verse chapter six. Brothers, if someone's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Now, what is the really obvious application at this point? Well, for those who have sinned, who are caught in a sin, that is overwhelmed, overtaken by sin, there is restoration possible through the gospel. And that that may be the one thing that someone here tonight needs to hear. Uh, Maybe this past week, overcome, surprised by sin, and stumbled. What grace there is in the words of the Apostle Paul that those who have been caught in sin can be restored. That is good news. Uh, But notice also the implication of those words, that sin is not to be the norm for the Christian. It is something from which we need to be restored. Just as last week we saw it was the responsibility of the individual Christian not to use grace as a license, This week, in these words, Paul says, okay, sin is not something that we are to rest in, but something we need restored from. And so there is comfort in these words, but there is also a gracious warning. This is not to be the norm. And how is this restoration possible? Well, look at the first word of chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers. Brothers and sisters. Restoration from sin is a community project. Life in the Spirit, in step with the Spirit, is a community, a brother and sister project. Uh, This life of the Christian is not a privatized or an individual life, but it is one lived with our brothers and sisters. Do you know what? One of the most dangerous positions for a Christian to be in is in the isolation to sin. And one of the uh, greatest helps for any Christian is to live a life in intimate and constant fellowship with brothers and sisters who will be there to restore them when they do sin. Now, do you see who's to do this? Brothers, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore them. In Galatians, I think that just means those who are living in step with the Spirit. It is not some elite but it is anyone who is living not according to the sinful nature, but in step with the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. The point is you cannot help someone be restored from sin if you yourself are living in sin. You cannot give to others what you do not have yourself. But actually all of us who are living by God's Spirit are to be those who are on the watch and on the lookout for those who have been caught in sin and to aim for their restoration. Now that word restore, it's actually the word that's used of the disciples in the gospels when they were mending their nets, restoring their nets. But in the uh, kind of medical world of the day, it was also used for uh, kind of setting a bone that had been dislocated or fractured. Have you ever dislocate something? It kind of makes you a bit shuddery, doesn't it, when you just think about it? 
But that is the picture of when someone, when a Christian is caught in sin, it is a dislocation that needs relocation. And that is the ministry that we are to be involved in as a Christian community. That we are to bring to health, to restore. That is if they are living with the obvious deeds of the sinful nature from chapter 5. We are to seek to bring them to be in step with the Spirit, bearing the Spirit's fruits. Now it's an important question, isn't it, to ask, well, how are we to do this? What does that look like? If I see a brother and sister stumbling into sin, how do I restore them? Well, two really important words, gentleness and watchfulness. Gentleness. It doesn't come naturally to many of us. I think often we can, when we see someone in sin, we aim more at kind of amputation than restoration, don't we? We kind of come in with the hacksaw. Uh, Paul says that is not the way. It is with the gentleness it constantly has in mind. I'm not going for amputation here, but I'm looking to restore them to health. And it's important that this happens within the framework of relationship. Uh, Proverbs has so much wisdom for us in this. Uh, The wounds of a friend are faithful. And so when we see our friends stumbling into sin, we need to be those who are willing to give faithful wounds for the sake of their health. We need to remember to do this as we aim for restoration in the gentleness of the gospel uh, that does not come with a rod to beat them, but with a hand to help them up, to remind them that if they live and indulge in sin, they are not living in the liberty that the gospel has given them but it is a return against slavery. And a really practical thing, when you're involved in this gentleness, a great way to express this gentleness is in prayer. That when you speak to a brother and sister who has stumbled into sin, and as you've reminded them of the gospel, that you pray with them. That you remind them that uh, you are not doing this out of a sense of superiority, but as a brother who is concerned for them or a sister who is longing for their health. And you say, let me pray. Uh, That is how, with gentleness, but also watchfulness. Uh, Watchfulness helpfully keeps us humble because the sin that your brother and sister has stumbled into today may be the sin that you are tempted by tomorrow. And so again, that is saying, okay, I'm coming alongside you not to judge you as someone above you, but as your brother who uh, needs your help as much as you need mine. And we are to be restoring those who are caught in sin. The greatest danger to a Christian is isolation to sin, and the greatest danger to a church is toleration of sin. Uh, We might, I think we're probably prone to lean to the side that says, our love covers over a multitude of sins. And we think someone else will deal with it or uh, they'll cope themselves. Uh, Paul here counters us with that and says, actually, you need to be those who gently confront those. Because he's already said about false teaching, a little yeast can spread through the whole batch. And so this little sin that we maybe perceive, that this person cannot see themselves, may be the first little bit of yeast that could work through the whole church. Uh, So we need to be at this ministry 
with a gentleness and a watchfulness, but also with an urgency, because the church that tolerates sin is the church that will be overrun by it. Uh, the greatest protection for us as individual Christians will be uh, that intimate accountability. And the greatest expression of love will be this gentle confrontation. Uh, let me read to you from a guy called Mark Dever. He's just got a really helpful paragraph on what this looks like and why it's important. He says, People in the church sin, but growing Christians welcome other Christians into their lives for the purposes of confessing their sins. That is, in large part, how spiritual growth happens, by accepting biblical correction. Sin needs darkness to grow. It needs isolation disguised as privacy and prideful self-sufficiency described as strength. But once these conditions prevail, sin is watered with the acid of shame, which then makes darkness appear more attractive to the sinner than light. Bringing our sin into light by confessing it in the context of personal accountability friendships helps to prevent the sins we struggle with now from becoming scandalous later. We really need to be at this level of intimacy that we have friends who will be willing to wound us gently for the sake of relocation rather than dislocation. Um, if you're struggling with a sin tonight, maybe you feel like you have been caught in sin. You know, the greatest lie that you can believe is, you know, it will be better if I keep this to myself. Uh, that is to forego one of the means of grace that God gives us, our brothers and sisters. And actually, one of the best things you could do is to confess your sin to them, that they might bring you to restoration. Uh, this is an exhausting ministry. Uh, if you've ever dislocated something, uh, you'll know that dislocation is kind of, ah, and then relocation is like, ah, it's a sore bit. But after that, there is relief. And as Christians, we're called to be engaged in that really painful bit. Uh, this is an exhausting ministry. But this is where, led by the Spirit, we are brought to be breathless for our brothers and sweaty for our sisters as we seek their health and their restoration rather than a slow decline into a hardness of heart. I, I trust this goes on at Charlotte Chapel. I hope it does. Uh, I, w I wonder when the last time you were engaged in this type of ministry was. Can you think? When did you last gently confront someone about a sin? If it's been a while, is that because your friendship group hasn't been sinning? Probably not. Uh, maybe we need to pray for the courage and the perception and the closeness of relationship and the depth of conversation and the love that will drive us to get past the awkwardness for the sake of the health of our church. Uh, content to be exhausted as we are led in this spirit-given ministry. That's the first one. Verse 1, restoring those caught in sin. Uh, let's look at verse 2. Uh, not only restoring those caught in sin, but carrying others' burdens. Carry each other's burdens and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Another obvious observation. Life is burdensome, isn't it? And just as the Spirit leads us in a community project to restore from sin, 
the Spirit leads us to be those who carry each other's burdens. And the word Paul uses here is quite a general command. It could cover anything from financial difficulty to persecution to sickness to addiction to anything. Carry each other's burdens. And the Spirit is He who leads us into a burden-relieving ministry. I think by nature we're prone to run away from suffering, aren't we? Uh, Maybe we think we've got a big enough burden to carry ourselves. Um, Maybe uh, we just are awkward and we think, if I get too close, uh, I just get awkward, don't know what to say, I'll say something stupid. But we have a tendency to retreat from suffering, to move away from the burdens of others. The Spirit actually leads us towards them and says, do you know what, you need to move towards suffering. So that when you see a brother or sister in Christ burdened, you go and you stand in their shoes, you get shoulder to shoulder, and the burden that they are carrying, you allow to slide onto you. So that you share some of that load, that weight. And when you carry a burden, it always costs you. There is always a price. Whether it's just emotionally draining you so you get home at night and just think, I'm spent. Or whether it's a financial cost whereby you have to help someone uh, with monetary issues, it will cost you. Or whether it's just time and it's being with someone and weeping and weeping with them night after night. Burden carrying is costly. It is exhausting. But it is to be in the ministry like that after our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, the great burden bearer actually bears the burdens of his people through sending brothers and sisters to them. Come with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to illustrate this. That the great burden bearer bears our burdens through sending us each other. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 5. It's on page 1162 if you've got a church Bible. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us. How? How is God going to comfort Paul? By the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. How does God, the great burden carrier, God, the great comforter, comfort Paul? He sends him Titus. Do you see that? He comforts Paul by the coming of Titus. The burden carrier bears our burdens by sending us each other. So here's a question. Who is the Paul that you need to be a Titus to? Who is the burdened one that is crying out to you for aid? Who is the troubled one who needs relief from the weights? 
Who is the Spirit leading you towards in your thoughts even now as you think, okay, who is that Paul that I can be a Titus to? You know, elders, uh, for your um, uh, fellowship groups, for your home groups, who are the burdened ones that you need to be caring for? Standing next to, in their shoes, bearing the weights. Members, who are those that God has put across your path that you need to uh, stand with, cry with, share with, help? Because God comforts, he bears our burdens by sending people like Titus to make our joy greater than ever. It's how God does his work. This is Christ-like, cross-like love. See in verse 3, this is how the law of Christ, the pattern of Christ, is fulfilled in us. It's like back in chapter 5, verse 14, the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. To be led by the Spirit is to lead towards burdens. To be led by the Spirit is to be breathless for your brother, sweaty for your sister, as you carry their burdens with them. See these two things? Exhausting. Exhausting. You know, I did think this afternoon... It's almost a sign of spiritual health in a church. A sign that a church is led by the Spirit that their members sleep during sermons. (laughs) Because they come on a Sunday exhausted. Because they've been bearing each other's burdens all week. It's not an excuse to sleep. (laughs) But you know what I mean? I wonder if we're feeling too refreshed. We almost feel like we're in heaven already. Uh, But there are still burdens to share. Uh, It is important, though, that we realize what is the one thing that will stop us from doing this. You'll see that these verses are almost sandwiched, verses 2 and 3, sandwiched by uh, verse 26 and then verses 3 to 5. Restore from sin, carry each other's burdens. But what is the thing that will stop us from doing this? Verse 26, let us not become conceited. Uh, It's not a word we use very much anymore, is it? Uh, But actually, it's a good definition of conceit in verse 3. Here's what conceit is. Anyone who thinks he is something when he is nothing. That's conceit. When you have too high an opinion of yourself, when you have a deceived illusion that you are better than you actually are. Conceit is a boasting when you have nothing to boast about. And that is what will keep us from carrying others' burdens and from restoring them from sin. Why? Because it leads to these two things, to provoking each other and to envying one another in verse 26. Uh, If you think that you are better than you actually are, it may give you a position of perceived superiority so that you look down on others and say, I am better than you and I will prove it. That's what conceit says. Or it looks up at people and says, you are better than me and I resent it. See, conceit not only looks down and judges and rejoices that you are above others, but it looks up and it hates the success of your fellow Christians. That seems to be what is going on in Galatians. If you look down at verse 4, 
Uh, Paul is countering some attitudes that are rife in the Galatian church. He writes, each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to others. So it seems in the Galatian church that this conceit is driving unhelpful comparisons. So that people, rather than testing themselves, are testing themselves in comparison to how other people are doing. I think that's what's behind uh, the circumcision thing in the letter of Galatians. That either people are looking up at those who are circumcised and envying their supposed superiority, and so saying, okay, I want to be circumcised, or they're looking down on others and saying, I am circumcised, therefore I can boast. And there are these unhelpful, ungodly comparisons that are going on that are driven by this conceitedness. Do you know, conceit will kill a church. Because if you are conceited, if you think of yourself more highly than you are, you, know, you will never confess your sins to your brothers and sisters. Because that will destroy the illusion that you are trying to project. If you are... If you have an opinion that is better than it actually is, you will, you will never confront someone gently about their sin. But when you see them caught in sin, you'll actually rejoice because it gives you that position of one-upness. If you are conceited, if you think of yourself more highly than you ought, if you have this illusion that is deceived that I am something when I'm nothing, do you know you'll never carry someone else's burden? Because you will think that your burdens are more important. Or you will delight that they are struggling when you are not. Conceit will kill a church. It will never confront gently anyone in their sin. And it will never carry a burden. This comparative competition cannot be partnered with love. And so Paul's application is really clear. Verse 4, test your own actions. Uh, Don't compare yourself to others. When you come to church, when you serve, when you play music, when you teach in the Sunday school, when you lead a fellowship group, when you pray at the prayer meeting, don't pray wanting to provoke others by saying, look how amazing I am at praying. Look how better we were in music this week than you. Or don't come envying despising the gifts of others, despising the opportunities of others, because that will kill a church, because it will never restore and it will never carry. I think Paul speaks with irony when he says, then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. See, these false teachers, some of the people in Galatians were taking pride in the fact that they were circumcised. And they're taking pride in their delusion. Paul says, okay, right, you want to be proud about something? Here's something to be proud of. Be proud in the fact that you are nothing. I think it's similar to what he's saying when he, in 2 Corinthians when he talks about boasting in his weakness. Here's what you can be proud in. The fact that you have a right evaluation of yourself. That you don't think you're something when you're nothing, but that you're content when you're nothing. Because that is when the gospel is most precious to you. And so Paul finishes in verse 5 by saying, each one should carry his own load. 
There are some burdens which we can carry for one another. There is one burden which we must bear alone. Titus could come and comfort and carry Paul's burden. But on the day of judgment, Paul will stand accountable for Paul. Titus accountable for Titus. On the judgment day, it will not be one of comparison between believers. But the opportunities and the gifts that God has given us. Each one must carry his own load. So that's wonderfully liberating. Um, I'm not accountable for your gifts. And I'm pleased about that. Um, but I am accountable for my own. We need to carry our own loads. So Christian brothers and sisters, I hope to see you next Sunday morning exhausted, breathless, sweating. And that will be the evidence that we are a church in step with the Spirit. That we are led towards suffering, not withdrawing from it. If you're not a Christian tonight, uh, on the one hand, this may be quite an intimidating thing. You know, we, we quite like the world of Facebook where we can project an image of ourselves that is better than we actually are. I can choose the photos. I can choose the updates. I can choose what I review and hide what I want to conceal. Um, and so the idea of coming into a community of brothers and sisters who know you, who uh, would even confront you, might be quite intimidating. But you know what? It is wonderfully liberating. You don't have to try living, straining after this illusion. But you can be content to say, do you know what? I don't have to pretend like I'm something. I know that I'm nothing, but in Christ I have everything. But I hope on the other hand, there is an attractiveness to this. That in a world of ever-increasing individualism and isolation and these false friends, that here's a community that will love you that will brother and sister you and care so much for you. And you've got to know that that is nothing in ourselves, but everything in our Savior. The one who was breathless, who was the great burden carrier, not only of our infirmities and our diseases, but of our transgressions, our sins, when he bore them on the cross. Let me pray.